Welcome back to Health Affairs This Week, where we health affairs editors get together and go beyond the headlines to dive into the latest health policy news. I'm Rob Lott. And I'm Ellen Bayer. So, Ellen, I thought we would uh, talk about um, the fact that we're approaching the two-year anniversary of the pandemic. Think about all the ups and downs along the way, the thrill of uh, the vaccine rollout, and then the disappointment of the various surges, Delta and Omicron. It's been a, a real wild ride. And now here we are with case numbers from Omicron uh, on a downward trajectory. A number of states are taking steps to end mask mandates in schools and elsewhere. And uh, in response, we've got CDC leadership saying that um, with the vast majority of the country still experiencing high rates of transmission, it's still too early to roll back their guidance on masking, although that may change very soon. There are some reports that uh, they may come out with updated guidance any day now. It does make me dare to think, Ellen, that this public health emergency that we've been living under for so long these past two years may finally be coming to an end. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, in the past two years, it just uh, so often felt like this pandemic is dragging on forever. But it's worth noting that the official public health emergency lasts for 90 days at a time. So in these past two years, HHS has renewed the official public health emergency eight times, most recently in January of this year. And one headline that caught my eye last week was in Politico pointing out that February 15th was the date uh, on which HHS would have to provide its 60-day notice to states if it was planning to end the public health emergency uh, at the next ending point in mid-April. Um, since that day has come and gone, uh, we now know that the official public health emergency will extend past April until and until when, we really don't know. But in any case, no matter what the official date is for the end of the public health emergency, as you were saying, Rob, with the drop in cases that you were mentioning allows us at least to imagine and envision what life would be like when the public health emergency ends. So it seems like this is a good time to talk about what that would mean in the health policy world. You know, Ellen, one metaphor that I think is kind of useful for this conversation comes from Dr. Lena Wen, former Baltimore health commissioner and occasional health affairs contributor. She talked about an off-ramp from mass mandates and other COVID-related rules. And I, I really like that uh, that metaphor. It sort of implies uh, that you can't just uh, take a right turn off the highway and get where you're going. You've got to move to the, the proper lane. There's lots of signage indicating that your off-ramp is coming up. And then once you get off the highway, unless you're you know parking at the end of the ramp, you still have a, a ways to go and you've got to navigate all the twists and turns um, to get to your ultimate destination. I think as we um, as we consider what happens next, there are so many policy implications that stem from the potential end to the public health emergency, from scope of practice rules to housing protections, the list goes on and on, and we can't pos possibly cover it all here. So I thought maybe you and I could drill down just a little bit on just two key examples. Okay, sure. Yeah, the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about the public health emergency ending is Medicaid, which together with the Children's Health Insurance Program provides comprehensive health coverage to more than 83 million low-income people. And 
Medicaid enrollment's gone up by more than 12 million since uh, just before the pandemic, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. And this is really striking, given that before the pandemic, Medicaid and SHIP enrollment were actually going down. So people have explained uh, the big enrollment spike that we've seen during the pandemic to the tremendous job losses and economic disruptions that the pandemic caused, and also to protections that were enacted as part of the Families First Coronavirus Response Act back in 2020. Yeah, Ellen, I think Medicaid is such a good example of what's made health policy so freaking complicated over the last two years during this pandemic, right? It's a federally authorized program with significant federal funding, but it's ultimately implemented and administered by the states. And it's that tension between the states and the feds that has been the source of a lot of challenges over the last two years. Now, in terms of Medicaid specifically, you mentioned the role of the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. What exactly did that do for Medicaid programs in the states? Sure. So under that law, to be eligible for the increased federal Medicaid matching funds that states have been receiving, states have to ensure continuous enrollment for people that have been on Medicaid since um, mid-March of 2020. And they're not allowed to make any changes to their eligibility enrollment rules that are more restrictive than what they had in place as of January 2020. So this has been a huge change from states' standard operating procedures in which beneficiaries have to have had to go through what's called the redetermination process, which means they've had to periodically submit documentation, which is pretty extensive, to prove that they're still eligible for the program. So redetermination has often led to a process that's referred to as churn. So people receiving Medicaid may not have access to online portals where they're supposed to submit documentation or they've moved and they don't receive notifications that were sent by mail, or they just have any number of life challenges that prevent them from getting together all of the documentation that they need to submit before the deadline. So they end up getting dropped from the program and that creates a gap in coverage, uh, which which uh, is really disruptive and can have major health implications. So after the public health emergency ends, states will be able to start back up again with doing these redeterminations. And it's been reported that up to 15 million people, including 6 million children, could possibly lose Medicaid coverage as a result. Wow. And that's coming at such a pivotal moment when people are really still in pretty fragile situations, that would be a huge loss. Absolutely, it would. And it raises major concerns for people's health and economic security and equity. People of color are overrepresented in the Medicaid program, and they've suffered disproportionately in terms of illness and death and economic losses during the pandemic. So CMS has made health equity a top priority, and CMS Administrator Chiquita Brooks-Lashore has named health equity as the first of what she calls six strategic pillars to guide all of the agency's actions. And CMS is being really proactive in trying to avoid these kinds of catastrophic Medicaid uh, coverage losses that could potentially occur when the public health emergency ends. And so the agency is coordinating with state Medicaid agencies and it's encouraging states to work really closely with healthcare navigators and community groups 
to help people keep their Medicaid coverage if they're eligible, and if not, then to transition quickly to other types of coverage. Another thing that'll be affected in a big way by the end of the public health emergency is telehealth. Yeah, Ellen, under the public health emergency, CMS rules governing telehealth, which uh, previously could only be reimbursed on a very limited basis um, in Medicare and Medicaid, those rules have been relaxed substantially so that providers can, for example, conduct telehealth with patients located in their homes and outside of designated rural areas. They can provide remote care across state lines through telehealth now and deliver care to both established and new patients uh, through telehealth. Providers can also uh, bill for telehealth services as if they were provided in person. Additional types of providers have also been able to be reimbursed um, during this public health emergency through telehealth, such as um, physical therapists. So what do we know now about the effect of those rule changes? As a result of these flexibilities, Ellen, um, as well as the substitution of telehealth for in-person care, especially early in the pandemic, um, HHS reported in December 21 that there was a huge 63-fold increase in the share of Medicare visits conducted through telehealth from 2019 through 2020. And uh, the number of Medicare telehealth visits increased from the hundreds of thousands to the tens of millions with many beneficiaries using telehealth for the first time. Wow, those are some major changes. So are we going to see them go away when the public health emergency ends? Uh, The answer is not clear. So for public programs, Congress has already made certain changes permanent, such as eliminating geographic barriers that had limited Medicare telehealth reimbursement to rural areas. Um, They are continuing to allow patients to access telehealth for mental health diagnosis and treatment from home including um, audio-only technology. But then it gets a little murkier. CMS has announced that it will continue Medicare reimbursement for other services added to the telehealth list through at least December 2023 so that it can study whether to add them permanently to the Medicare telehealth list. So um, look forward to 2023. Uh, But in its announcement, CMS said that it recognizes there's a need for a lot more research on the differences in telehealth use before it makes um, any more permanent decisions. So what kinds of research are we talking about here? Yeah, well, there are sort of two big areas where researchers are really digging in in terms of telehealth. One is quality and one is quantity. In other words, what do we know about the quality of care delivered via telehealth compared to the care delivered in person? And then quality or utilization, to use another common term, people are looking at whether or not increased access to telehealth reduced the overall consumption and intensity of care by replacing in-person visits with telehealth, or is it additive? In other words, are people actually consuming more care than before now that they have access to telehealth, potentially without adding any more value or improvements uh, to to the long-term outcome. So these are the questions that, that researchers have been asking for a while. The pandemic didn't, didn't start that process, but they suddenly have a lot more data to look at. And uh, speaking to our fellow editors here at Health Affairs, hold on tight because I would not be surprised if in about a year we're going to see a flood of uh, research papers submitted uh, to Health Affairs and other journals that look at these questions using recent data. 
So I know we're almost out of time, but I just wanted to bring our listeners' attention to a piece that we published in Health Affairs Forefront, which is formerly known as the Health Affairs Blog, in June of 2020. And it's by Alden Lai, Susan Skillman, and Bianca Frogner. And it's called, Is It Fair? How to Approach Professional Scope of Practice Policy After the COVID-19 Pandemic. And it talks about the issue of state health professional scope of practice laws and what happens after the pandemic when states might potentially roll back certain flexibilities that they've implemented in these laws that have allowed, for example, advanced practice nurses and and physician assistants to have enhanced uh, prescribing authority and in some cases uh, practice uh, with less physician supervision. So the scope of practice issue has been a hot topic. That's a whole episode unto itself. But <laughs> so the bottom line of this piece is to encourage state leaders not to make hasty changes to some of the flexibilities that they've implemented during the pandemic uh, that would be viewed by frontline healthcare staff as, as unfair and that would cause them to uh, have reduced job satisfaction and a lesser sense of professional well-being. And these are major issues, and given the understandably high rates of health professional burnout and resignations during the pandemic, these kinds of things really have major implications for patient care and something that we should be concerned about. So what was emphasized at the end of this piece were two things that I, I think can serve as, as really useful guides in the post-pandemic world. The first thing is that changes to the flexibilities granted under the pandemic should not be made in a rush, but should be carefully considered and should be based on the evidence. Um, evidence of how these kinds of changes affected healthcare delivery and quality and patient safety. And the second point is in communicating with frontline healthcare staff about changes to uh, about any changes to flexibilities that were made during the pandemic. Leaders in both the public and the private sectors need to emphasize the evidence base for any kind of change and also emphasize the tremendous debt of gratitude that our country owes to all of them, from doctors to nurses, physician assistants, and home care aides who've really put their lives on the line during the pandemic and will continue to do so in the months and years ahead. Absolutely, Ellen. I completely agree. And I think that's a great place to wrap up for today. So thanks to everyone for listening. If you liked the episode, please tell a friend, subscribe to Health Affairs this week, wherever you get your podcasts. Ellen, it's been great talking. Thanks so much, Rob. Take care.